Hi, I'm Zachary Fall. I'm Nadia Cavell. And I'm Ben Weaver Hinks. And you're listening to Migratives, the podcast championing migrant creatives in the UK. Today, we speak with Mariana Aristizabal Pardo, a Colombian performer and director based in London. Mariana came to the UK to study at Central School of Speech and Drama and is the co-founder and director of Mariana Malena, a Latin American female-led theater company that specializes in physical and devised work. Mariana spoke to us about her rehearsal room methodology, her experience of the UK visa process, and the ups and downs of life as an artist in the theater industry. So thanks so much for joining us today, Mariana. No, thank you for the invite. Mariana, I just wanted to start off by talking a little bit about your background and your sort of early experiences. I know obviously that you grew up in Colombia, and I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your upbringing, what you remember of it, and particularly your early experiences of theatre and the arts. So yeah, as you said, I grew up in Colombia, I grew up in Bogota the capital and I am part of the privileged group that was able to get like really good education so I went to an Italian school my entire life since I was three till I was 18 and then I went on to acting school in Bogota. Mm -hmm. I basically was educated as a European which is quite interesting and weird. I literally learned how to write in Italian before I learned how to write in Spanish and basically all my education like my history classes geography classes all of that was mainly Italy and Europe based rather than Colombia based which was strange but I think back then it felt like oh I'm getting like an international education which was extremely appreciated and I think it was also a school that was very kind of forward thinking and very free and critical of the reality around. So that's why I think my parents put me in that school. Not that I have any links to Italy or have family that come from that background. But whilst I was in school, I think I was a really hyper child. And I think my parents were not entirely sure what to do with me. So I was in every possible extracurricular class that you can imagine. So I was in gymnastics, in music, in drama, in uh, swimming classes, everything. <laughs> and I think I was very dispersed. I had a lot of issues like concentrating. So I think they put me onto all of these activities to kind of like, yeah, in a way, teach me how to focus. And then I lived a year abroad when I was 16. I moved to Canada. The education system was very different from mine. And so I had the freedom to choose what classes I wanted to take. So I took film studies and drama, basically. That was the two things that I was interested in so I was all the time in like in that sort of bubble making theater and like putting on plays I think that was the introduction to sort of yeah the creative world and I think when I was 16 or when you're about to finish school I kind of had a conversation with my brother and he had just finished school and I said Feli I'm not sure what to do either I want to take philosophy or math or drama and so he said you're shit at math Oh, sorry, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to wear. Swear. It's okay. You're You're really bad at that. Like, you would not survive. Philosophy, meh. I think you're really bad as well. Maybe you can take up drama. And I was like, okay, yeah, great. So, like, I look up for my brother quite a lot. So I was like, okay, yeah, definitely. This is my path. Yeah, as time went by, I sort of convinced myself that "Mm, I don't know how to do anything else. (laughs) And then I talked to my parents. And I think in a very nice way, but I think now looking backwards, it's a bit like, whoa, challenging. My dad said, you can do whatever you want. Whatever you choose to do will support you as long as you become the best. Oh. Mm-hmm. Which is like kind and nice, but a bit challenging, no? <laughs> a big challenge. Yeah. Do you think that was because of concerns about it being an insecure career? Or what, what do you think his motivation was saying that? I think that there's one side of that being like, yeah, ooh, how are you going to make a living? But I think on the other side is that my dad came from a really, really, really poor background. And so he made himself up alone and like he worked his ass off to kind of like become who he was. And he never had the support from his parents. So I think for him was really important 
to make us aware that the only way of kind of making it happen, whatever it is that you want to do, is by working your ass off, basically. Mm. <laughs> how how sort of were the arts perceived by your community, by your school, by your sort of the wider sort of cultural environment you were growing up in? Was it seen as like a prestige career or was it seen as something that was potentially risky? So I think there's like two opposing perceptions of it. In my school, everything art related to like art history and drawing and painting and all of that was looked up very highly, I guess, because of all the cultural references that we have to Italy and all the artistic development that happened in Italy. So it was like perceived as this great art that will free you kind of thing, no? Almost godlike feeling. Mm. But at the same time, making your life as an artist was a bit like, ooh, that's a bit of a challenge. Like, that's a mystery that no one dares to kind of try or, like, dares to open that secret door and see what happens. Sure. And uh, I think I remember my mom telling me, like, well, it's going to be a tough life. You need to be ready for it. Yeah, embrace it. But then when I went to uni and I started talking to my friends at uni, I remember their stories being like, oh, my parents don't talk to me anymore. Basically, my family has broken up because of me choosing to study theater kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. So I think there's many points of view with regards to what the arts mean in Colombia, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think that people still don't believe that you can make a, like a decent living out of it. I think. And, and uh, perhaps silly question, but can people make a living in Colombia doing theatre or the arts? Yeah. Uh, I think it's tricky. I don't think it's as possible as it is in this country. Not that it is easy here, but I think there's much more opportunities here than in Colombia. So, for example, if you want to be an actor or a, or a director, there's a couple of things that need to play on your side for it to happen no so either you need to have like good connections make sure that you always have a side job well like in here mm -hmm. but yeah it's tough you need to either combine it with like doing tv or movies to be able to kind of make theater you cannot make a living out of making theater alone and i think that and this is really interesting when i moved here i started realizing that as an artist you kind of deserve a salary as well like not your rehearsal time is a time that you need to get paid for as much as it's your passion and as much as you love it and as much as you need to express something that is inside your soul and you can't live if you can't express it kind of thing you do deserve to eat yeah <laughs> and no which is which is really silly and it sounds really silly but i think it has taken me a lot of time to sort of acknowledge the fact that i do deserve that money mm -hmm. and that that does not mean that my product is going to be less quality or less politically engaged because of it no it's so interesting because i don't think any other person goes to work and questions whether the money devalues their work you yeah. know no lawyers don't go to the office and think oh well you know is the fact that i'm getting paid problematic for the integrity of my work yeah 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 it's really interesting yeah <laughs> it kind of brings me on to another question which is obviously i know that you you originally trained in Bogota and then you moved to London to study at Central. Yeah. And I, I wondered what had motivated your move and whether it was largely to do with moving to somewhere where there was more of a chance of a career. So I think it was a combination of different things. I think when I decided to study theatre, because I had lived in Canada a year in my head after that experience, it was absolutely clear that I wanted to have like another experience abroad. So I remember telling my mom like okay I'm gonna apply to this school and I'm gonna go to this school somewhere in Canada and she was like great uh you find a way to pay for that and I was like oh shit <laughs> <laughs> no there's no way I can kind of like make 20,000 Canadian dollars to kind of pay for my tuition no so I was a bit I was confronted with that reality but then that seed kind of stayed and then I remember meeting a cousin of a friend let's say in that he was an actor and he lived in London. And so he, I asked him like, hey, what is the theater scene like? And he was like, oh no, it's great. And there's many opportunities and you can come and study in these unis. So he mentioned like the big names, no? So Rada, Central, Goldsmith, like all of those ones. Yeah. 
And so that kind of stayed in my head, in the back of my head. And after finishing uni, I kind of had it in my mind. And then I remember one day my dad showed me an article in the newspaper saying that Centra was holding auditions. And I was like, ah, interesting. Hmm, I'm going to apply. And they replied and they say, yeah, great. Can you come in tomorrow for the audition? And I was like, oh, shit, I don't have anything prepared. <laughs> great. I'm going to go anyways. <laughs> so I kind of looked at the different programs that Centro had. And I think I was really curious about like research and how can you do research in the arts and how can you apply it to your practice? And so I decided to apply to that program without any sort of expectations. And so I got into the program and then like three months later, I was sort of packing my bags to leave. So it was nothing extremely planned. And yeah, it kind of happened in that way. Wow. wow. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I'm, I've been a very lucky person. Had you been to London before? Never, never in my life. Wow. And I remember thinking the theatre scene is going to be absolutely brilliant. I convinced myself of that, not having a clue about what it was going to be like mm. and saying, I want to leave Colombia because I'm not entirely sure what are my possibilities here. And I think I was feeling a bit stuck and a bit tied to sort of like what was expected of me as a member of a particular society in a particular context. Mm -hmm. So I was a bit like, mm, I kind of need to leave this space because I'm not sure where I can go or like where are my boundaries in this space that I live in. I was like in an extremely comfortable position. I had a really nice job. I was living in a beautiful flat I had everything I wanted but I was feeling really constrained in that sense so I think coming to do that MA was also my chance to say all right I'm going to move really far away and I'm not going to come back in a while mm. I'm going to try as much as I can not to come back for a bit as much as it takes <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah I know that it hasn't always been a smooth process for you and I I read that you <laughs> had some visa issues a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I know particularly for people from outside the European Union and probably soon even for people from the European Union, yeah. um, there are so, so many barriers in this industry. Yeah. I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about your experience of that. So when I finished uni, I applied for another type of visa that was called graduate entrepreneur. So I had started sort of like a business supported by Central in the way that they were endorsing me basically to say like, yeah, she's doing the business. And back then that visa was only for one year and you had the chance of renewing it. So basically for that visa, the requirements were quite easy. You had to have a bit of money in your bank account for three months. You need to like show bank statements of that. And then you had to fill in the application and send your passport. So it was quite straightforward and being extremely cautious as I am in like being super aware of everything going bad, I had planned many months in advance to have that money in my bank account. So I had opened like a, a separate savings account and I kept on putting money in that account. So I probably had like tripled the amount that they were asking. So if you think about it in a timeline going backwards, they were asking for the last three months, but I didn't make any transactions between the month four and three, uh, if that makes any sense. Mm. So let's say my money was sort of, it didn't show any movement. And so when I sent my documents to the home office and then I was waiting for my visa renewal and I was fine, then it came back a letter saying that my visa had been rejected because I did not fulfill the time limit on my bank account because I had made a transaction. I put in a bit of money like five days after the three months, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Mm. Not before, but just after. And so on that basis, they rejected my application. And then I made an appeal saying that I had more money, that if I didn't have that money, then why would it show that amount of money that it was just like doing the maths? And they rejected it. And so they said, you have 15 days to leave the country, otherwise you will become an illegal immigrant please call the home office to arrange your departure. <laughs> wow. So that was a bit unexpected. So I remember calling the home office and they said, well, you have two options. Either we help you out with the ticket or you pay for your own ticket. And I was like really angry. And I said, well, what if you help me with my ticket? And they said, if we help you with your ticket, you're not allowed back in 10 years. And I was like, oh. Oh, then you don't need to help me with my ticket. Wow. Thank you very much. So basically they said, right, you need to buy your ticket and then you need to let us know when is the date that you're going to 
take the flight, so we take your passport there. So I paid for my flight, and then I remember in the counter, I had to hand in this letter. Because when you go to the counter, you kind of show your passport so they can give you like your boarding pass or whatever. Mm. And then I remember the man looking at me and being like, ooh, hmm. So he said like, oh, I'm going to call the manager. So he called the manager and the manager started speaking to me like really slow Spanish. And I got really pissed off. And I was like responding only in English. (laughs) And she was like, so you need to go through costumes. After going through costumes, you need to go to this room. And then in that room, they're going to give you a passport. But you need to go in now. They asked me to get in there like six hours before, just in case. And so, yeah, so I had to go and wait in a room, like make a phone call. It felt like a movie. It was really bizarre. So I made a phone call in this like empty room and then someone came in with my passport and gave me my passport. And then, yeah, I had to go back home. But at that point, I had just managed to get one of our shows into two different venues for the summer. And I was also about to start a seminar about theatre translation in Central. So it was really bad timing. So I think that kind of helped me and gave me sort of the impulse to apply for a different type of visa. And so I had to wait for five months in complete uncertainty about what was going to happen. And then, yeah, I managed to get the, another visa. And then a month later, I was here. Wow. How did you feel during that time? I mean, were you afraid that you weren't going to be able to come back? Ooh, I think I experienced many, many, many different things. I think when I went back, and I was thinking about that today, actually, the hardest moment was my parents picking me up at the airport at 3 a.m. Mm. It felt like a defeat. Probably was not, but for me, I think that moment, like sort of walking onto my parents felt like, ooh, I kind of failed. Mm-hmm. Not that I failed, but I think I felt it like that. And I think for the first month, I was just, I really just wanted to be in bed and not wanting to see anyone and just like crawling under my bed and not coming out from there. But somehow, uh, because of Malena, my creative partner here, Mm. I think because of her, I kind of said, okay, yeah, I need to make this happen and I need to start making sure that I get that visa. So yeah, but then when you send the papers and then you start waiting, it's sort of like counting the days, no? So it's like, oh my God, it's only 60 days before they give me a reply. Oh, it's only 59 days. So it's a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty. And I think two days before I was to receive the reply, I said, well, you know what? I can't with this amount of like anxiety and pressure anymore. If it happens, great. If not, it's fine. Like I am happy to give up as well, mm. but it happened. So fantastic. <laughs> so it was good. And what type of visa did you apply the second time then? So I applied for an exceptional talent. It was called back then. I think right now it's called like global talent or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is for five years. So that was like, phew, I don't need to worry for five years about my legal status. Great. Amazing. Joy. Yeah. Yeah. Congrats on all that. (laughs) Great. I know that your work engages a lot with Latin American culture and stories. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if you could elaborate on that and describe the stories that you encountered growing up and how they've inspired you. Yes. So I think there's many layers to that. On the one side, it is the way of approaching work. So these are a couple of differences that I have found in the UK in like doing theatre in Colombia. So in in Colombia or in general in Latin America, it's really collaborative and is very like hands-on and everyone is hands-on. It feels a bit more horizontal than in the UK. And I was lucky enough to meet Malena Arcucci, which is an Argentinian designer here whilst doing a job. And then we decided to create this company together. And originally, we were really curious about how can we develop a methodology that works here in the UK based on our practices in Latin America, or like what I have learned in Colombia, what she learned in Argentina, in Mexico, and so sort of bringing that into the way of making. So that was one of the questions that we had originally. Then I think I am personally really interested and how theatre reflects on the world that we live in. And I think coming from Colombia, theatre is very uh, related to the context. So 
I don't know if you know or not, but Colombia is a country that has been in war for many years. We are in a peace agreement since 2016, but it's, we're still not there yet. And the current government is very against that peace agreement because it doesn't align with their political views. So I think theater has become a way of making sure that people don't forget what has happened in our history. So for me, theater is in a way a political and very active art. Mm. So it's very engaged with society and is for me is intentionally made to make you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. That's what I like. And then coming into the UK, understanding what am I or who am I? And then this kind of like umbrella falls onto you, no? Because you're not Colombian anymore, but you're Latin American. You belong to this sort of like community that encompasses a lot of countries that all speak Spanish in that part of the world. Mm. And so I started understanding in here that it is like, yeah, this really interesting net that brings people together from different cultures. And even if we're all very different, we do have language in common. And even if we're really different, we do have a lot of things in common, not like this notions of families, of parties, of sharing. So I think that's why we started wondering about Latin America. But I also think that unfortunately, we as a community are not in a level where we are allowed to tell stories beyond our identity. Mm. So everything needs to revolve around our identity. And the only way to have recognition from people is if we talk about our identity. So basically around being the other. Yeah. Yeah. Or that's what I have found. That That's the only way people will say, oh, yeah, you're valid enough kind of thing. Mm. So I think, yeah, it's a response to many different things. And in that process of like investigating and like inquiring, okay, how do we talk about this? Like, how do we engage with this without like kind of betraying ourselves? We created different shows. So one show was about how migrants cope in a different city and how different types of migrants exist in a city and how do they then call that place home or what does home mean and how does that change throughout time so that was one show that was called I Occur Here that was part of Casa Festival in 2017 and it was part of the Emerging Artist Week and then our last show that we started in 2019 and had like a second run in 2020 is called The Two of Us and is about my grandma's story and how her story is a way for us as women or or me as a woman and Malena as a woman to sort of engage with our past and understand ourselves as migrant women in this context. Right. So, yeah. So could you then tell us more about, well, the method that you uh, came up with that you were starting to uh, talk about here? What approach did you develop together? Yeah, so basically we draw inspiration from different techniques. So we are very interested in creación colectiva that is not similar, but something that you can compare to devising techniques here, no? Mm -hmm. And then we're also interested in horizontal relations in a rehearsal space. And we also use some techniques of theater of the oppressed by Boal to sort of develop our work. And we like to have multilingual and interdisciplinary work so we bring all of these things together and we bring people from different disciplines into the room so for example for the two of us we had a musician we had a movement director we had a dramaturg we had a playwright Malena that is a designer and me a performer mm -hmm. and basically what we did is just play around some themes and topics. So I remember having interviews with my grandma and like asking her a lot of things about her past and her life. And so we chose a couple of moments in her life that we thought were interesting and we were exploring those moments in different ways. So for example, we would split and then we would do it. Okay, how do you explore the birth of a child through music? How do you explore that through design? How do you explore that in writing? And how do you explore that in movement? So we would all go and create stuff and then swap roles and play with each other's role and then come back to our original roles and try and make things together. I think it's very draining. Yeah. <laughs> but... I'm, yes, I'm sure it, it must be. 
Could you tell us more about the different uh, practices you mentioned for those who might not be familiar with all of them? Okay, so we work with Creación Colectiva. So basically, Creación Colectiva is like collective creation in English mm -hmm. and is a way of doing that is super established in Latin America for a different reason. So one of the reasons was that probably, not probably, sorry, definitely, <laughs> <laughs> putting up plays by playwrights was really expensive. And so they couldn't afford to pay for the rights for the play. Right. That was one reason. So in Latin America, the notion of company and like the same people working together for an extended period of time is common. So they would get together and someone says, mm, I've been thinking about this. Can we start doing like a research about this topic, whatever the topic is? So people start bringing in whatever they think can feed that research and then they have like a really long extended improvisation process and then someone might come in to organize mm. and yeah so it's sort of like weaving together yeah so that's similar to what you were um what you just described yeah 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 and then teatro de oprimido is just a technique that augusto boal uh developed and is related to like community engagement and how do you take theater out of its physical space and bring it onto the people and how do you make people engage with it in a way that doesn't feel like is too detached so if you think about it, it's like something extremely skilled that you can never approach but more like we're all playing together kind of thing and another that for me is extremely important and this is probably something that I learned in Colombia is that theater needs to be a joyful experience as much as it is uncomfortable and as much as it can open a lot of questions and make you feel oh, a bit tense. But the process of making has to be a very pleasurable experience. So for me, it has to be almost like a constant party. Right. <laughs> so it's like a carnival happening all the time. And it's also like when you're having dinner with a bunch of people that you really like. No, that everyone brings an ingredient and you all cook together and then you sit and eat. Mm -hmm. So I think those are my, yeah, the two things that I am very interested in as well in the rehearsal space, generating that sort of feeling. And you mentioned also the horizontal relations in the, um, in the room. Yeah. Uh, so basically, I think after working here, I realized that there is a very strict hierarchy, no? And people have very defined roles. And know when to speak and how to speak and in what meeting are they allowed to say something or not which I find extremely complex and like there is this whole like code of conduct that you kind of have to know but no one teaches you about uh -huh. <laughs> it's a bit like oh my god what is this <laughs> kind of thing so basically what we do is that we decide that there is not a director that probably like Money-related uh, issues, Malin and I will take the decisions because we are in charge of the company. Like anything production-wise and that sort of thing, yes, we, we are sort of like the directors and we take charge of that. But within the rehearsal room, we do not have a director. So we all work together and we have to try everyone's idea. So if, for example, there's five people in the room and the five of us have an idea on how to create a scene about I don't know, a marriage or something like that. We need to try everyone's idea. And we need to embrace that openly, even if we believe that our idea or someone else's idea is the best. Mm -hmm. So it is time consuming. It is draining. And at the same time, we are happy to, for example, letting someone lead particular moment throughout, let's say, the creative period. No, So we're going to do a, a sound exploration. So probably... The musician will take the lead for a little bit and then someone else takes the lead and someone else takes the lead for, for a little bit of time. And mm -hmm. no one has the entire power over things. When we get to the rehearsal, it's more about like, okay, what do we need to achieve by the end of the day? Okay, let's make it happen. And then that's, yeah, that's how we try to work. Right. That sounds great. Like, like a very safe space for everyone to explore, really. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very democratic. I like it. Yeah, I mean, it can be challenging and it can bring more confrontation, but it's natural, no? Because we're human. Mm -hmm. But it's also learning how to deal with the confrontation and like reaching agreement. 
Well, um, you mentioned that you and Melina were the ones who would make the uh, the money decisions. Um, how how do you fund your company? How have you find uh, funding your projects here? So different ways. Um, sometimes we've received seed commissions or emerging artist awards to kind of start up the project. But as time goes by, we are also realizing again coming away from where we come from and maybe coming closer to like the UK that you need to get paid and it's not just a bit of money that goes into the production and a tiny bit of money that you get paid for all the work that you've done no mm -hmm. so I think we started like that and we had a pot of like two grand and then we split it amongst the actors and us but we all earned nothing in reality, in terms of like compared to the amount of work that we put in. So yeah. as time has gone by, we've decided that everyone that collaborates with us needs to get paid. But we are happy to give away our payment for everyone else to get paid, which is also really bad. Right. <laughs> because we've done it <laughs> in the past and it's not okay either. Like for our last project, the two of us, so we got, uh, we managed to get an Arts Council grant we had a seat commission from Popelay and then we were able to do a fundraising campaign for it and we were able to pay everyone and pay ourselves a little bit. That's very cool. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think what we're trying to understand now is how do we apply for funding to always get it and sort of learn how to write those applications for, yeah, the residencies, yeah. the different things that we can apply to, to get them. Yeah. We uh, are in the process ourselves of applying and we know it's a, it's a very complex one and certainly something that's hard to wrap your head around at first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we have found that by writing that application, the product becomes clearer. For yourselves as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like you start understanding the sort of nuances of your project. And I think for us, it helped a lot, like writing the Arts Council application because we had like this really vague and open and very hippie idea and then when we had to kind of sit down and like kind of okay what is it that we want to say who are we talking to yeah why are we saying what we're saying it kind of like tied all the knots yeah so we were able to kind of like yeah understand what was the project in reality yeah that's true and uh well how have your projects been received uh by the british audiences and by theaters and spaces here so with Ayukar here, we won a Best Theatrical Production Award by a, it's called Lucas Award. So it's like a Latin American award for the UK. So we won that for Best Theatrical Production of the Year, which was quite exciting. I know yeah. it's a tiny, small audience, but it was really good. And then for the two of us, I think people really enjoyed it and people were really happy. And it's nice because sometimes I encounter people and people still talk to me about it. It kind of feels that, yeah, it left something on people. It left a question. So I think that for me means success. Yeah, absolutely. The women's question is always so fascinating for me. And I guess I wanted to know a little bit more about that show about your grandmother. And also you mentioned your mother a few times. Yeah. And, you know, because your dad said you can do anything you want as long as you do it to the best of your ability but I just wanted to know like in terms of your mother and grandmother you know what kind of influence they had or what their approach to what you're doing is like and yeah maybe if you could talk about that a little bit more oh yeah uh, of course I think it's interesting because I think in Latin America all the mothers are the ones that kind of like carry the household forward are the ones that always take sort of like the second place mm. and so I think I am because of them because I was raised by them mm. and they are incredibly strong women that sadly don't necessarily give themselves the credit for mm -mm. but I do think that these women are like fighters and they have been incredible so I think by doing this show about my grandma, for me, it was sort of like a discovery of who my grandma was and also understanding where or, or what things are really painful for her in a way that she kind of creates a new narrative for herself to kind of cope with. Mm. And how do we sort of 
create our own identity in that way. So like my grandma uh, has eight children. She had a couple of stillbirths and uh, one of her sons died really early mm. when he was a baby. So like just thinking about that, not the ability of giving birth to so many people is like, wow, you're such a strong person. I no? mean, eight children, my God. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And like raising them and never taking credit for it, mm. which is, I, I think is incredibly generous as well. When you say never taking credit for it, do you mean because motherhood isn't valued enough? I think it's seen as like a given. Right, right. So like women need to be in the house and need to be raising children, need to be in the kitchen and like that's a thing that no one questions and like why would you give yourself credit for being a housewife kind of thing mm. why would you give yourself credit for like raising your children of course you have to because that's your duty as a woman mm. no <laughs> it's like yeah. a shared responsibility or i i would think no it should be yeah so yeah they are women that i definitely look up to and admire greatly but at the same time feel different from what they believed in so if I think about my grandma, and she was born in 1927, so in a very macho society. So like, if you think about that, instead of like the social structures around that, she followed the path that was kind of designed for her, no? So you grow up and you marry a man, and then you have a house and you have children. And like, that's what you need to follow as a woman. And that is sort of like your destiny. And you, I, I don't think she ever questioned that. Whereas... I think I've allowed myself to question that, to also question, do I actually need, want children? Is that part of what I am, who I am? Mm. By having them or not having them, does that define me as a woman? What is it that defines me as a woman? So I think I've moved a lot away from my grandma and her perception of what a woman is and what she should do. But it's been really interesting because we've been able to have like really open conversations about this mm. and like from very different like sides of the conversation, we've been able to say, yeah, we think differently and we respect each other. Mm. So that's super cool. Do you think it's part of your, your drive as an artist? Because for me, it definitely is because none of the women in my family up until my sister and I really, at least the sort of my, my two grandmothers and my mother worked and for me it's, it definitely drives me you know that I yeah that I want to work that I want to create something other than children as an artist yes definitely and maybe your children are the work you produce yeah as well like I've questioned that a lot like we suffer so much for a show no we yeah. have endless nights without sleeping <laughs> We nurture it all the time. We make sure that everyone is happy. We make dinners for everyone to be happy. We invite everyone to have a drink. We make sure that everyone is happy at the rehearsal space. And then, no, the day of the show comes and you kind of give birth. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a strange thing. It mm. is. So maybe it is our way of having children. There's yeah. no wonder to me that we artists often refer to their creations or their jobs as, as their babies, for sure. Yeah. Um, you mentioned COVID-19, and yes, it's been a very strange and uh, difficult period, to be honest, for everyone. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, well, in some respect, for our careers, we are used to some things that we had to deal with during the crisis. But mm -hmm. how did you cope with this crisis, and how have you coped generally um, over the last well, a few years uh, being here when things get hard. Yeah. What is your uh, method of coping and keeping sane and creative? Yeah. Okay. So with COVID, I think at the beginning, I was exhausted. So I was extremely tired because we had been working since like December nonstop in like three different shows that we were doing, plus not having all the side jobs here and there to kind of survive. Yeah. And I was absolutely exhausted. So I think for the first kind of three weeks, I took it as, oh my God, it's a forced holiday. This is the best thing that could ever happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, the entire world has stopped. I don't need to feel guilty about like stopping because this is something that I have found through the years freelancing. And I still have no idea how to cope with this 
is like thinking that if you do not take that job, they will not call you again, even if it's on a Sunday, 7 p.m. at night, and then you need to go to work the other day and you haven't stopped working for a month and month and months. Mm -hmm. So I think having that sense of, oh, the entire world shutting down allowed me to say, okay, cool, I can also shut down and it's fine. And I think what happened to me is that I went into like this really strange sort of relaxation period. Uh, and I was very chilled and I bought a ukulele. So I was just like <laughs> in my head playing my ukulele, like in this really strange, like <laughs> fantasy world and cycling a lot. So I was just like completely obnoxious about everything and just like, yeah, cycling 50 kilometers a day. I think that was probably my way of coping, like cycling like a mad person every day hmm. and playing the ukulele. <laughs> and I remember Malena being like in absolute panic and saying like oh my god what is it that we do what we do has no meaning and like I was in a complete disconnection so I think I kind of like unplugged mm -hmm. and I think that was my way of coping sort of saying like no I can't engage with reality yeah which I don't know if it's good or bad but yeah it was what I used <laughs> throughout that period and I think I was lucky enough to be working for like two companies part-time and I was furloughed mm -hmm. so I think that sort of gave me a bit of like sense of easiness and although it wasn't enough and although like many other things I was I was okay because a bit of money was coming in and I could buy my groceries pay the rent yeah no I didn't need more than that so I think for me like reducing my expenses to the minimum and like knowing that there was a bit coming, that was fine. And that kind of gave me a lot of ease. Hmm. And then in the past, working with the ups and downs and the quiet times, I struggle a lot. I panic and I have a lot of anxiety. So I overwork myself and I take as many jobs as possible in whatever I can, uh, which is not healthy. <laughs> hmm. uh, and I'm still learning how to cope with that. Right, yeah. Um, but I'm not sure if I am yeah, the right person to ask. I am terrible. I think it's like there's no right or wrong. It's just everybody's so individual and in yeah. learning how to navigate the sort of highs and lows. Yeah, true. But then I remember having a conversation with a friend and he said like, hey, we're animals. We're meant to survive. So... You will be able to survive. Like you don't need to overdo yourself. Mm -hmm. Just wait. And whenever you feel the need, you will go and get it because that's sort of your nature. So relax. And I was like, oh, oh my God, this is so enlightening. Yeah, I think for me, like what COVID has really brought to the fore and also all the sort of world events that have been going on is how resilient human beings are. Yeah. And it's about, I guess, when you are going through a low, just connecting to that a little bit more. Yeah. We will be okay even when things seem like they'll never be again. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, so what do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of the UK industry in terms of performance and theatre? And I guess you've already sort of compared it a little bit Colombian one, but do feel free to go into more detail about that. And what in your mind, how should it evolve here? What could be better, basically? Okay, so I think there's many incredible things about theater in this country, going on different levels. I think there is a culture around theater, and that people go to the theater. Mm. So that's one incredible thing that in Colombia, the amount of audiences is extremely reduced. Mm. And it's always like the same three people that you run into every single performance kind of thing. <laughs> so I, for me, that is extremely refreshing. The amount of people that engage with theater on a daily basis is like, wow, amazing. Mm -hmm. Whether that's the National, or the West End, or a small production, or a fridge. Now, of course, you do get the ones that have less audiences, but that doesn't mean that they don't have the potential to reach a full audience, no? Which I think is quite nice. On the other hand, I find that the production in this country is incredible and is really structured and is really planned and thought through. Mm. So I find that incredible. I think that in Colombia, we kind of solved everything as it emerges, sort of like we're always kind of stopping fires when they come up kind of thing. Right. 
So, so it's all a bit like all over the place. And also the possibility of imagining yourself as a working actor for longer periods of time is like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> it's a dream like. As in it's, it's a real job, like it's a real profession. Yeah, yeah. So I find that it still kind of like dazzles me that mm. possibility and and I think sometimes I'm really afraid of that and I kind of like hold back but yeah then what I find that should be improved or or that I find challenging again being a profession and a job then it makes it just a job no and so you take projects just because they pay you right whether you care or not or whether they have an impact on you or is there actually something that you want to say mm. so sometimes I do feel that there's a bit of a detachment from the product and it's like oh yeah mm. I go Monday to Friday to the rehearsal room and then come home and completely disconnect mm. for me there's a lack of like a visceral connection with the projects that you do right I also think that I don't know where the balance is but I find that creative processes in this country when like funded are extremely productive but to an extent that can be harmful <laughs> i do think that you need like spaces for the material to breathe and like moments of being bored and not knowing what the heck is it that you're doing for new things to come mm. and i think that having just three weeks of rehearsal uh, monday to friday nine to five won't give you that possibility yeah so you find there's a, maybe a certain rigidity sometimes to some aspects of how work is made here. Yeah. And I think that processes do need time. And I think for me, it's important for you to sleep on things. Maybe you're in the shower and then you realize that oh, that's the answer or no, or mm. sleeping or walking, yeah. or you just look to the side and kind of like it clicks and you're like, oh my God, yes, this is the answer kind of thing. But I do think that that level of intensity sometimes doesn't allow that to happen. Yeah. And I think because time is money, people come very ready for like, okay, this is what I need to do and I cannot move an inch or question a little bit more. Yeah. Because we, we cannot afford to do that. Mm. Yeah, so I find that a bit difficult. Yeah. For instance, I'm doing a play in France for the first time in, in well, a decade, I think. And it's incredibly refreshing. I mean, the process has been obviously made much longer because of COVID, but mm -hmm. we started with one week going through the text together just as a first experiment. Not even all the actors were there. Mm -hmm. uh, then we went away and we had three weeks rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And then we went away for a few months mm -hmm. and we're going to go back for a final three weeks and the first few performances. Nice. And that's so it's been spread out over months and months. And how do you feel it? I think it's it's been really refreshing and really wonderful because it's exactly like you said, you have time to digest the work you've done in the room for those three weeks and you've had time to explore and question everything. And sometimes, you know, because things can still end up moving fast, even in that context, you only end up really processing and understanding what it is exactly that you're doing in that time in between. And same for the director, same for you know the the designers and everything it, it really is a it's a wonderful thing to have yeah 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 i think that is key but then again no time is money and is in in this city that is like no exactly yeah thousand miles per hour is difficult yeah, yeah. but yeah having that luxury i think is important mm. yeah <laughs> kind of like interest like the downtime that isn't paid, we consider a luxury. It's so funny. Like people's idea of luxury, I feel like the generic idea of luxury is, is very different to our idea of luxury. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I guess it's just like existing as artists in this kind of hyper-capitalist era that we're in. It's very challenging to say the least. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to ask you about your um about accent mm -hmm. you know people perceive that here within the industry because obviously as actors going up for castings like today i went for a casting where they were looking for a french actor and an american actor and a german actor for for the different territories and i was only seen for for the french part whereas because of 
me learning English from Americans, I could, you know, I would hope to also be seen for American, but yeah. it just doesn't happen because I very much get pigeonholed. So I just wondered ah, yeah. what, yeah, I just wondered if you'd ever experienced any prejudice or... Oh, definitely. I think on like a regular basis, what I get is, oh my God, but you speak so well English. Mm. <laughs> Which is a bit like, what? <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Is this a compliment or an insult? I'm not entirely sure. Somewhere in between. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, oh, but you don't sound Colombian. Mm. And it's a bit like, what do Colombians sound like? Like, do you have the universal truth about how Colombians sound like? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I've had a lot of that. But, of course, being an actor and being really curious about, like, copying, when I got here, I was like, ha, I'm going to try and copy this accent as much as I can. Right. Just for the fun of it. And I think something stayed. <laughs> yeah, you can definitely hear the British influence in your act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I live with Brits. I think I've been living with uh, some Brit friends uh, over the last year and a half and I think that has also had like a big influence on the way I speak hmm. and yeah picking up on like the way they talk and that kind of thing so yeah definitely my accent has changed a lot yeah and has that changed your sense of identity has that changed how you perceive yourself I think it has shown me that I might have different personalities yeah <laughs> uh, that I am a completely different person in Spanish than in English mm. that in English I make more effort to be sort of like correct mm. and make sure I say the right thing and I make sure to express myself properly and like mm. I tame myself more and like sometimes I think something really funny and if I can't find the words I won't say it so I restrict myself a lot more in English than I would do in Spanish. Right. So, yeah, so I think there is definitely a divide. I am definitely two different people. I am not super reserved, but like more reserved and like proper and like less chatty in English <laughs> unless people ask me to chat. Uh, whereas in Spanish, I'm like full on kind of thing uh, and like almost in a it, it might for some people might be a bit invasive but embracing everyone else with like voice and like my body mm. it's amazing to exist in sort of different ways like that um how do you how do you feel yeah i mean for example my german is like i have a french accent when i speak german and uh -huh. for a long time the only way like i was like when i was learning german i was like how am i going to be funny in this language like no. you know the humor is so cultural you know mm -hmm. and so the way i found to make people laugh when i was speaking german was by taking the piss out of myself speaking german <laughs> and like being very french about it and it made people laugh a lot so that's a side of my personality that exists very much more in German than it does in other languages. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you kind of become something of a chameleon. Yeah. 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 Do you think there is a, such a thing as like, um, this is such a huge question, but a, a migrant identity? Like, what do you think all migrants might share in terms of identity? I think that we all share a sense of non-belonging ness mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and in-betweenness mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and also sort of a nostalgia for that faraway place that we all come from mm. yeah and that could have like elements of romanticizing I guess depending on the conditions that you migrated in like depending yeah yeah there is different layers of that but I do feel that we share that I'm not entirely sure if we can all be put under the same sort of basket or like category because I definitely think that there's different types of migrants in this country and sort of like different layers or categories of, of migration in this country. For sure. But yeah, I do think that we all have that in-betweenness, non-belonging, longing kind of thing going on. <laughs> That's so interesting that there is that word longing and the word belonging or and yeah yeah it's more of of course there's so much diversity um yeah but it's more like I'm just always interested in what people feel is the common denominator yeah um and so you know in your show um where you explored being a migrant and you also looked at what 
does the concept of home even mean? And so I wondered if you could mm. share about what it means to you and what do you consider home today? Oof. <laughs> well, I've discovered that, of course, my perception of home has shifted a lot over the last five years and that I do not necessarily link it to a physical space. Mm. So I don't know if you think about like the house that you grew up with or the table where you all had breakfast with your parents or your family when you were growing up that kind of felt like home and that was the thing that you could relate to home yeah. a couple of years ago not before maybe starting your migration process and I think I do not have that feeling anymore of linking it to a physical space I have found like mini versions of home in people Mm -hmm. and in creating sort of rituals with those people. So, for example, with a couple of my friends, like all Latin American, once we were talking about like, ah, oh, yeah, family lunches on Sunday. Yeah, they're quite important and quite big. And in my house, that was the tradition. Like everyone, the entire family would get together at my grandparents to kind of like have lunch and like spend the entire day. And so we've sort of tried to replicate it in a very well, in our way here. Mm -hmm. So we have created these sort of rituals where we get together and we have lunch together and sit down and have a coffee or go for a walk together. And that for me right now is what home is in one sense. But for me, home is also the food that my mom cooks. Mm, yeah. And yeah, the desserts that my grandma makes. Mm. So it's like a strange split that it has memories and it's sort of like the new rituals that I'm starting to create in this space, in this city that could be related to the city, but I think are related to the people that I have encountered and I have chose to be friends with, I think. Definitely. One thing I love to ask our guests is um, what they feel is the most British thing about them. Would, would you identify in yourself as maybe the most British thing or something that you've taken on? Beer. Beer. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Like, yeah. I absolutely love beer. Uh, it's really bad, but I love it. Like drinking on Sundays, on Tuesdays, on Monday, like no matter the day of the week, it's like, yeah, it's beer time. Kind of thing. I love it. Any day is beer day. Yeah. yeah. And um, London, how would you describe it? Like, if you had to sort of paint your London or write your London? What I love about London is how diverse it is mm. and how you can have bits of the world in the city mm -mm. and how you can encounter people from so many different backgrounds and with so many different stories. Mm. I think that is what I find more, most fascinating. The second thing that I find incredible about the city is the amount, like the cultural offer of the city. So there's always something happening to a point that you feel a bit frustrated. That is a bit like, ah, I can't engage with everything. Yeah. But I, I find like magical the possibility of choosing. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you hope for for the for the future? I know it's a very strange and tricky time, but. We must think ahead and keep going <laughs> in terms of yeah. your own journey professionally and maybe in terms of society at large, especially maybe when it comes to the migrant question. Yeah, I guess professionally, mm -hmm. I would like or I would hope for my company with Malena to establish further mm -hmm. and for us to be able to sort of create more work and being able to show it here and in different places around the world. That would be the goal slash dream. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the world and, and us migrants, that is a tough one. But if we want to do like positive thinking, <laughs> yes, let's do that. Freedom of choice would be my, my wishful thinking that everyone mm. could choose where and how they want to be mm. not just in terms of the physical space that they're in but also in terms of their social interaction and like us as humans being able to respect the other mm -hmm. yeah 
and respect the differences. Yeah. That will be the dream. So hopefully we'll get there. For sure. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's a lot of resistance right now to that, but maybe that's yeah. a sign that we are actually moving forward. I find often when you take one step forward and then you take three steps back. Yeah. Yeah. Mariana, this was an absolute delight. Thank you so much for talking to us. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to Migratives, a podcast produced by Woven Voices. Migratives is created and hosted by Nadia Cavell, Zachary Fall, and Ben Weaver-Hinks. Our music is by Guy Hughes, and our artwork is designed by Lucy Stapleton-Smith. To support the podcast, you can rate, review, and subscribe on the platform of your choice. And to find out more about our work, follow Woven Voices on social media, or check out our website, wovenvoices.org.